Good morning, everyone. After such a long, long, long time away, it's good to see everyone. And just as I think everyone knows me, but just in case, as uh, Rupert said, my name is Rob. I'm the minister in training here. And part of my role is preaching occasionally. Um, I'll be doing two weeks here, two weeks there. And uh, me and Rupert were chatting, and we thought it's probably best practice for me, and maybe best for you, if I go continuously through a book at a time. Um, so we're going to start with James. So please turn into, in your Bibles to the letter of James. You'll see on the order of service, I think it gives the page number if you've got the, the visitor's Bible. Now, uh, for this week, we're going to do a book overview. Uh, and then next week, we're going to start in chapter one. Um, so you'll be glad to know I'm not going to read out the whole of the letter. But um, we are going to look at the first four verses of chapter one. And then we're going to turn a couple of pages and we're going to read the last two verses of chapter 5. So, chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now turn with me a couple of pages to the final two verses of chapter 5. From verse 19 then, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. So the first thing I want you to do is keep looking at those final verses and notice the word wanders and wandering. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering... Wandering is to lose your way, to fall from the path, heading aimlessly in no direction. For the Christian, who has a very specific and important destination, wandering is dangerous. Notice in those verses what the wanderer is saved from when they're brought back, from death. Now, in The Hobbit, like that, that's good. In The Hobbit, the dwarves are desperately trying to make their way uh, to their to their treasure, their inheritance in the Lonely Mountain, but they must go through Mirkwood Forest. And in order to make it uh, safely, they need to go on this special path created by the elves. And just as Gandalf is leaving in Gandalf fashion, he's leaving them at the entrance of the forest. He says this: "Don't stray off the path." If you do, it is a thousand to one, you will never find it again and never get out of Mirkwood. And then I don't suppose I or anyone else will ever see you again. The wandering Christian is in danger of death. And as we work through the letter together, one big question we will be exploring is, how does the Christian end up leaving the path of God's truth and wandering off into danger. 
But before, before that, we need to ask a different question, one that we ask every uh, book in the, in the Bible as we try and work out what it's about, and that, was, and that is, who's it originally written to? Now, with James, this is both simple and challenging. Simple because if we go back a couple of pages to chapter 1, if you look at verse 1, it very clearly states that the letter is from James and is written to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So, job done. That's that answered. But who are the 12 tribes of the dispersion? Well, let's start with 12 tribes. It's an Old Testament way of referring to God's people of Israel. It eventually becomes specifically for Jews. The New Testament carries the, uh, the title forward for all followers of Christ. So most people suggest this particular way of address, addressing Christians may mean we are looking at converted Jews. But what about the dispersion? Well, a preacher called Nigel Stiles notices how the word dispersion in James chapter 1 is also used in Acts chapter 8. In Acts 8, the context, Stephen's been martyred, and Acts 8 verse 1 says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Um, and commentaries point on that if you read to Acts 11, those same Christians traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So that would mean James is writing to a group of converted Jews who were once from Jerusalem but have been forced to leave. Now, on the one hand, this is a sign of good things. Acts is all about the gospel breaking out of Jerusalem and being sent across the world. But perhaps it's, it's a bit more complicated for them than simply good news. Uh, back in the Old Testament, we have a, a group of Jews who are also described as the dispersed. They are the ones who, after exile, chose to never return to Jerusalem. They chose to remain living among the nations as the dispersed. Now, perhaps the, the, the Holy Spirit, in James writing this, has, has given him the sense that these converted Jews are feeling themselves like exiles. Is that why he chose the words 12 tribes and dispersion? They have been sent away from their home in Jerusalem, sent away from the temple, the once center and presence of God, forced to find a place to settle. They must be living with an internal tension between the good news of Christ and yet feeling like exiles, not belonging anywhere, everything feeling unfamiliar and alien. And in some ways, we today feel like that as well. Most of us weren't born Jews who missed living in Jerusalem and longed to worship at the temple, but we are all waiting to return home, our spiritual home with Christ. We live in the tension of the good news of Christ and yet forced to find temporary residence in a world that hates him. I think it's also worth taking a moment to set aside the significance of Jerusalem to consider this letter is written to a group of real, normal people who have left behind what is familiar to them. They have left behind what is comfortable and known and are starting out life in a new place, making new lives amongst new people in new lands, doing church like they've never known it before. And many of us will know what it's like to leave a congregation, a church building, a denomination, 
forced to start a life of worship in a new location, alongside new people, leaving behind the familiar, the known friends, family in some cases, the cherished and the loved. We know the challenges, the hardship, and the difficulty. But wherever we find ourselves, no matter our past or present experiences, all of God's people live as exiles from their true home. And I think you can already start to put together in your minds that that's going to be a big element to why Christians end up wandering. So let's return to that wandering we noticed in the final verses of the letter. James knows they've been forced to wander the earth, but he doesn't want them to wander from God's truth. Yes, they are without a home, but he doesn't want them to forget their spiritual home. He knows their present situation is difficult. They're feeling in a vulnerable position, but wandering leads to death. Wandering from God's truth sits above any problem they face. This is the ultimate danger because it leaves the soul vulnerable. To stray from God's truth is like losing that special path created by the elves in Mirkwood Forest. It's not an alternative route that will lead to the same place, but to fall from the path is very dangerous. And one word that should really send shivers down our spines as we go back to chapter 5. Just notice the, word, the words, if anyone among you wanders. James warns that anyone among you may wander from the truth. Now, don't mishear me. Yes, we have assurance in our salvation if our faith is genuine, but we all know people who seemed like their faith was born of good soil, but then they walked away from the Lord. So the question is, how do people end up wandering from the truth? How does this happen? Um, but at this early stage, as we begin to explore this letter, you might say, hang on a minute, what is God's truth? And I think that's a great question. Um, I think we're tempted to say, okay, God's truth is Jesus, or God's truth is Scripture, or God's truth is everything, uh, but, but what, which one is it? What is it exactly? Well, I think uh, a guy called Alec uh, Motier uh, says it really well, so I'm going to read out a quote from him, if that's okay. So he says in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul speaks of the knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness. Truth and godliness belong together. It is impossible in Scripture to make truth a mere matter of holding some proposition or creedal statements in our heads. Truth is a living thing. When it grips our minds, it changes our lives. If we claim to know the truth, the Bible would require us to prove our claim not only by reciting a creed and understanding it, but by the evidence of a way of life matching the truth. The evidence of a way of life matching the truth. Truth leads to godliness. And if we know the truth, if, if we know the truth, the way we live should match that truth. Now, the big challenge is when we realize God's truth is a wild truth. It is uncultivated by the world, untainted, untamed, unharmed, 
And when it implants itself in your heart, you become unhinged. People who are wild for God live out his wild truth. And in turn, they must face the hardship, though, of being considered wild. Britain is a great example of a country and society who has wandered away from God's truth at large. We, we often talk a, about a post-Christian era or, or losing our Christian foundations. But I wonder if the roots have altogether been cleared out entirely, whether we've moved on to being a pre-Christian country. God's truth in society today is like that scene, if you know it, from the original Jumanji film. (laughs) Stick with me. Now, there's one scene where you have all these wild animals. They're running around the town. There's elephants, rhinoceros, zebras. It's a stampede. It's crazy. And the reason it's so entertaining is because their presence is so wildly inappropriate. And it's that wildly inappropriateness that causes Christians to shrink back and be tempted to wander from the truth. I often say to people that, in my opinion, a school teacher today has one of, if not the most dangerous mission fields in Britain. Sticking your neck out and proclaiming God's truth in school today, it seems to have led teachers to not only being fired, but publicly shamed. How willing are you to take a public shaming for proclaiming and living out God's truth? How willing are you to be seen as wildly inappropriate? For myself, I don't have to go as extreme as public shaming. I just think about going to the barbers, the supermarket, the laundrette, speaking with friends or family. I'm always tempted to soften the blow of God's truth to avoid conflict. If I'm sitting down for a meal with, uh, with a group of non-believers, I think of the six weeks with you know, Fernanda's family or my family, out of some weird desire to be polite and respectful, I don't pray out loud and give thanks. I just ignore that Jesus is there at the table with me. And I think, you know, what about the way we use our money, the kind of holidays we have, the, the car we buy, how we raise our children, choosing a, a romantic partner for a relationship, the way we treat the poor, the homeless, the way we speak to people? Do we find our actions driven by God's truth, or are we shrinking away from it? And what about our our inner thought life? How often do we live externally as Christian, but our inner thoughts go against God's truth? Secretly, we think, oh, it'd be easier if God's truth wasn't so inappropriate and different from the people around us. Now, you might be thinking, actually, these examples are really mundane and and just the everyday struggle of the Christian life. That's not how people end up wandering from the truth. I think we're tempted to think people wander because of big things like persecution, serious physical and mental abuse from illness, maybe the death of a a loved one, really traumatic events. And, And that may be so in some cases, but I think we should be investing way more time in the examination of the everyday struggle. And I think that's what what James is doing in this letter. This is how the majority of people will end up wandering from the truth. This is how, how Christians will lose the path in the long and overgrown grass of the everyday struggle. 
Now, in, uh, in reading the letter, you may have uh, noticed a very striking start, so please just turn back with me a couple of pages to the left. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, we're, we're tempted to take the word trials as meaning these big traumatic events, but that's not what I see in the letter. I see examples of everyday struggles of the Christian life, things that may very well go unnoticed by your minister, by your family, your, your friends, the congregation, even yourself, things that make you forget you live as a temporary resident, that make you forget your future eternal home, Things that make you resent your citizenship in heaven and to desire to live as a citizen of the world. And here's the big point, the message, the reason, the how of how people end up wandering from the truth. Anyone could wander from God's truth if they are double-minded about the everyday struggle. They could wander from the truth if they are double-minded about the everyday struggle. Now, this phrase, double-minded, it only appears twice in the letter. So just look with me. Chapter 1, verse 8. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then flip the page to chapter 4, and then head to verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, this is one of the moments where the original language is helpful and where half the people will groan. Oh, original language. But here's, here's, a, here's a Greek word for us to learn together. Okay, So make a, a note of the word dipsychos. Okay? D-I-P-S-Y-C-H-O-S. Double-minded in its Greek is dipsychos. Now, it means to have two souls or two minds. Think of how you might... Say someone is leading a double life because they've got two separate and two very different lives. Okay? For instance, think of how the person who is uh, unfaithful to their partner um, is described in this way. And this is actually an illustration uh, used in the letter. So remain in chapter 4. Look at, uh, go back up to verse, verse 4. You adulterous people. Now, if we're familiar with the Old Testament, adulterous is a description given to the disobedient Israel, uh, who are pictured as the unfaithful bride. Okay, so who, who, are, who are God's people cheating on God with? With the world, you guessed it. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's what it means to be adulterous, cheating on God with the world. Picture the person who sits with their family at the breakfast table in the morning, knowing the night before they were in a hotel room cheating with someone else. As they move through their whole day, they are torn between two lives, thinking about two things. Their heart is in two places. The dipsychos, the double-mindedness that James is addressing, is the splitting of the mind, the heart, the soul, between desiring the world and desiring God. 
It's disgusting, it's ugly, and it's a betrayal of God. And that is the reason, it's what the very core for why people end up losing their way in the everyday struggles. Now, we'll, we'll go deeper into this as we work through the letter, and, and James will draw out specific examples for us to, to walk through and discuss. Um, but here's, here's three questions we can be praying about and reflecting on, okay? Number one, where are those areas in my life when I'm too scared to be wildly inappropriate? Number two, How is my desire for things of the world causing a splitting of my mind and heart? And number three, where in my life am I at risk of betraying God? Now, this is really hard stuff. Don't, you know, I I fully understand. This is very difficult. But this is where serious growth and maturity of faith happens. I think it also begs the question, you know, what does it look like to reach out to someone you've seen that has wandered and bring them back? How do we approach people and and challenge them on this? And hopefully as we work through the book, we'll have an opportunity to discuss that. Now, finally, after seeing how double-mindedness is this really strong uh, warning Let us spend some time seeing the encouraging part of the message in this letter. And that is that God's grace, his forgiveness, awaits the returning wanderer. Now, it's perhaps most easily easily missed part of the letter, but it is surely the most striking and powerful when you notice it. Let's move back to the final two verses of the the letter in chapter 5. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, when we read the word cover in the Bible, when God covers sin, it doesn't mean he hides it or pretend it's not there, but he forgives. And usually when, we, when people think of this letter, um, they think, oh, it contains lots of practical advice and ways we should be living and responding. And that is true. But perhaps in our excitement of, of seeing that and, and, and doing that, uh, we miss this powerful message of God's grace. That God's forgiveness awaits those who return. Now, take a look at chapter 4 again. And I want us just to spend some time looking at chapter four and uh, chapter four, verses four to eight. Okay, we're just going to skim through it. We've already started to explore uh, in verse four uh, a Christian who is in love with the world is betraying God. Okay, now verse five keeps up that tone by reminding us that our God is a jealous God and yearns for us to worship and desire Him alone. But verse six brings into view the powerful message that our God is also a gracious God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, even if today you find yourselves living a conflicted life, wandering down the double-minded path, 
between love of the world and love of God, you can turn things around, get back on the path of God's truth without fear of being punished. Even if today you find yourself in the position of an enemy of God and you've never known him before, please take your first step today. Seek reconciliation by the blood of Christ. God gives grace to the humble. So, verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And if you are willing, verse 8, draw near to God, and then he will draw near to you. We've seen that the warning that anyone could wander from the truth, but the big encouragement is that anyone who returns will be met with God's grace. Anyone who gives their life, their sin, over to Christ will be forgiven. So as we finish, let's just summarize uh, this overview and what we've thought about today. The good news is that reconciliation with God is made available to everyone and anyone across the world. But anyone who wanders away from God's truth, off down the double-minded path, who splits their mind and heart between God and the world, is in grave danger. That's the big warning of this book. But the encouraging and life-giving message of the book is that anyone who returns from their wandering, who repents of their betrayal, will be lovingly met with forgiveness by the power of God's grace. Amen.